uh, welcome to Wednesday night. Oh, sorry, I wasn't waiting for you, Lee. Let's try that again. All right, welcome to Wednesday night. Um, night, what is this? One, two, three, night four of Ephesians. Uh, tonight we're going to be going through verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. So 1 through 10 of chapter 2 tonight. Still trying to figure out who's, who's facilitating for David's group. <laughs> Maybe David told his whole group not to come tonight because he's not going to be here. I don't know. Um, I've got three things to announce, but I think I'll wait to announce those until later because um, I saw some folks that were still streaming in. So um, just pray and then, then we'll get into the text. Father God, we come uh, tonight and we are grateful to be together and to be in a spot where we can be gathered together and to open your word and to actively seek you out and seek out a greater understanding of who you are and how you desire to move in us and use us as your workmanship. And so we just pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, not only through, this, uh, through the Word, but also through our conversation with each other and our interactions that we get to have with each other, uh, not only in our discussion groups, but uh, in the passing to and fro. So be with us tonight, Lord, as we seek to glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said, we are in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. We see this nice continuation of where Paul was at um, after last week as he concludes this prayer with this seamless transition. I I think it's worth noting that uh, as we've been seeing throughout Uh, Ephesians, Paul loves to write these obscenely long sentences. So one sentence is verses 1 through 7. So we'll read that. We'll read that in its entirety. Actually, we'll just read all all of the verses together. And, uh, so this transitionary piece, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and settled, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul, after this prayer, he he gives us um, some interesting news. It's not really 
well, depending on how you look at it, it's either great news or it's terrible news. Um, and and it's, it's fascinating because we often, uh, we don't lo- usually like to talk about the past, um, and we certainly don't like to talk about the negative things of the past. We just say, well, that, let's like, let the past be in the past. There's bygones be bygones. We, um, I mean, it doesn't take a cultural genius to realize that we have tried to eliminate a lot of the things of the past, and we don't even want to recognize the things of the past, especially the negative things of the past, on a cultural level. Um, and yet, as followers of Christ, that's all we do is look at the past, and we look at history, and we look at how God has spoken in the past and speaks to us through the past in the present. So, Paul starts us out after last week and this grand prayer, and he's like, oh, and by the way, uh, you were once wretched, stanky, dead people. <laughs> it's like, um, you, we, our deep freeze used to be in our a garage, and except when I was using my chop saw, they were in the same, on the same thing, same uh, breaker. You're like, you have a lot of electrical issues. Okay. So it kept tripping uh, my chop saw when the freezer would kick on. So I was like, I'll just unplug the freezer, and then I'll plug the freezer back in. And then one day, Nikki was like, I don't think the freezer is plugged in. If you've ever left a freezer full of meat to thaw and warm for days, it's not a good smell. That's the imagery that Paul gives us here, is that you all were dead bodies. And what has, re- what has caused the death or what has caused the dead bodiness that you have possessed? Well, it's your trespasses and your sins. Now, this is not some sort of delineation of, well, what are trespasses and what are sins and and some things are sins and some things are trespasses. This is a rhetorical device that Paul is using to emphasize uh, the point that the errors in your life that have created the death that you have experienced. So it's not that trespasses are one category and sins are another category. And, and then he says, in which you once walked. Now Paul is going to continue to use this walking phrase as a way of lifestyle. So this walking is, uh, this is how you used to live. Because he's speaking in the past tense, uh, that you were dead, walking, living a lifestyle of trespassing and sins. And what did those look like? Well, they followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And as we see throughout the book of Ephesians, or the letter of Ephesians, Paul uses this cosmic language because he is trying to make this differentiation between uh, who God is and what's happening on earth. He's making this differentiation between the powers and principalities of darkness and the powers and principalities that come from God or that are God in and of himself. So he creates this very interesting word picture that is when 
we were living in sin, we were following after Satan. And, and again, these are, these are such strong words that often we, we either bristle at or we outright reject. So to live a life committed to sin is to live a life following after Satan. When was the last time that we thought in those terms or categories? You know, I'm going to go hang out with Satan for a while as I actively engage in sinful behavior or uh, in, even in opportunities where we aren't consciously making the decision that we are lured away uh, by Satan. And every time I say that, I just, my mom knows exactly what I'm going to say. Church lady, right? Dana Carvey, yeah, amen. Amazing. Some of you are like, no, still no. But Paul is telling the, the Ephesian church that, that by choosing to follow after the things of this world, they are, in fact, following after Satan. And, and this hasn't changed. Because the course of the world here is, hasn't somehow gone away. The course of the world hasn't somehow deviated or changed. And so we get into these interesting conversations about culture wars, and we've got to redeem the culture and all these things, and, and we're trying to, trying to fix a broken system that Paul is acknowledging is broken and is led by Satan. And then he gives this brief little sidebar. And, and we were living among those whom we all, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So notice this. It's not this, this radical thing. It is selfishness. That, has, that is at the root of following after Satan. And what does it lead to? It leads to death. And Paul is setting up this brilliant picture, uh, trying to get the listener and the reader, us, to get a clear picture of how sinful life looks. You know, why do we love Chip and Joanna Gaines? You're like, I don't. <laughs> well, some people just are so obsessed. You're like, well, because they love Jesus, and they live on a farm. They, they like, are always happy. Now, we love Chip and Joanna Gaines because they go into these houses, and you're like, who wants this house? Like, well, the person that used to live there wanted that house. And they take these houses, and they turn them around, and you're just like, oh, my word, move the picture away. You guys following me on this? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. They wheel away the picture and you're like, ah, like the house before actually wasn't that bad. <laughs> it would be far more amazing if the house was like completely decrepit and run down. But what do we do when we have a house like that? Oh, I just bulldoze it over. Like, get rid of it, build brand new. We see this imagery of a body, a life that is disgusting and broken and broken down. 
And it's all about selfishness and feeding the desires of the body and the mind. And before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we have to acknowledge that that our bodies and our minds still can wreak havoc on us today. So every time we're led to believe that, that we are following after our desires, we are entering into a challenging space that Paul says, well, it's how the sons of disobedience live. It's how the children of wrath live. And so Paul loves to give us lists of things that we shouldn't be doing, but he also loves to point out the fact that the sinful self is the sinful self, and, it, and we don't have to get into dissecting what types of sin are worse than others in order to see that my desires, my personal desires, tend to get in the way of the things of God. And they result in this thing called uh, wrath, the children of wrath, like the rest of humankind. So he paints this huge, broad brush stroke of no one is free. No one is exempt. No one is, uh, you know, somehow escapes from this. And we often wrestle with the reality that, well, the pretty good person defense, right? Like, well, I haven't really done that many bad things. I really haven't. Uh, I really haven't lived this wild life of anything. I've just been pretty straight and narrow, did these things. Uh, and yet, Paul seems to be giving us this clear picture, the Ephesian church, this clear picture, that anything pre-Christ is not good. There's not like mostly good, select number of people. He uses these broad brush strokes of everyone before Christ is in this wretched state. Then he gives us this transition. Now, we're still in the same sentence. And, uh, and I love this because the, the people that put together the ESV, they know that this is one sentence, but they give us a period so that they can give us a capital letter. Notice that. They give us a period, so because if you, after you have a period, then you have to have a capital letter, which makes the B in but even bigger than if it was just a little B and you'd almost miss it. You give us this phrase, but God, like this grand distinction between this was your life before, swamp, septic tank, bad, but God. We're like, woohoo! <laughs> and some of us are like, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's better. That's a better option. And again, C.S. Lewis gives us this wonderful, brilliant picture of, you know, so often we are the children playing in the gutter with mud pies when our Father desires us to have a vacation by the seashore. 
And we somehow become satisfied with the mediocre and the temporary of the present. And we just get, we get used to it. You know, back at college, you know, I had some friends that all lived together, and I was married, so I lived with somebody who was my wife, not a bunch of dudes. And you'd go over to their house, and you're like, what is that smell? They're like, what do you mean? It reeks in here. What is it? I don't know. It's like, it's all of you. <laughs> you all stink. But they'd grown so used to it that they didn't even realize it. That's the but God in here, the differentiation. But God, now notice that Paul has waited this long to give us the subject of the sentence. And God is the subject of the sentence. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, because of the great love with which he loved us. Again, this redundancy for effect, being rich in mercy. We see these, these overarching descriptions of who God is and what he's doing. And, and the, one thing that, the one thing that we see is completely absent from this section is the activity of humanity. Because all of these verbs that we see in this sentence and what comes in the next sentences are directed by God. God is the one who's doing the action. But God, who, oh, by the way, is rich in mercy. He's not stingy. He's not, you know, willing to hold back. He is willing to lavish his mercy on us, on those who were dead, those who were wretched, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans, in our trespasses, maybe your translation says transgressions, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead, he makes us alive together with Christ. Remember, remember last week we saw this brilliant, again, beautiful picture of who Christ is and how God has, has taken him and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit brought him back to life and set him at the, the right hand of God. See this? Jesus was dead. God brings him back to life. We are dead. God brings us back to life. See this interesting connection here? But it is God who is doing this. We are dead in our, trans, in our trespasses. It's not like we're mostly dead. It's not even like we're on life support. We are dead. Like, well, how dead? <laughs> dead, dead. Stinking, rotting corpse dead. We don't like to talk about this. We don't like to talk about this. And yet Paul is giving us this brilliant picture that it is God who comes and provides us with the life-saving resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do we do? 
He doesn't say we do anything. It doesn't say God, with our help, makes us alive. No, God makes us alive together with Christ. Then he gives us this, you know, like, spoiler alert. Oh, by the way, by grace you've been saved. What? And what else does he do? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So those three verbs, if you have your own Bible, maybe even if you have a blue Bible, go ahead, there's a pen right there. It's for the next person, and then you just initial your name. It's like carving your name in the tree. (laughs) Just write in the Bible. He makes us alive. He raises us up. And he seats us. And where does he seat us? He seats us, he raises us up, and seats us with Christ. You know, uh, this was, I don't know, probably eight years ago. Uh, my neighbor, uh, who lives across the street, that's usually where a neighbor is, I guess, unless they live next to you, but um, their daughter was getting married, and they said, hey, Eric, would you be willing to do our daughter's wedding? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to do it. So we do the wedding, it's at the NP Center, and it's all fun and games, and we don't really know anyone that's there, and Nikki's like, where are we supposed to sit? And Weddings are so awkward for the person who's doing the wedding because no one at the, the wedding wants to sit by the pastor. They're like, okay, well, our fun night was just ruined because you're sitting here. They're like, no, that doesn't happen. Oh, yeah, it definitely happens. <laughs> definitely happens. And I'm like, well, where are we sitting? And, and Paul, the father of the bride, is like, oh, you guys are going to sit with us. And he's like, what? Why are we sitting with them? I'm like, Because they want us to. Like, shouldn't we be sitting at the back so we can just leave? (laughs) No, we sit with them because it's going to be awesome. God raises us up. He saves us and he raises us up and he seats us. Not like in this outer spot, not like in a nosebleed, you know, obstructed view seat. He seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. Like, how incredible is that? (laughs) Eh, I mean, it's okay. Like, what are the snacks like? God takes us, and and I know as, as we talk through this, at times we... We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> and, and we can so often miss the magnitude of the reality of what Paul is saying. Like, we were dead bodies. God comes and he rescues us out of our deadness. He raises us to life as he has done to Christ. And then he kicks us to the curb. No, then he takes us and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. Like, how amazing is that? Yes. It's like, but I forgot some things back over there. No. No. Like, if your fridge ever dies, the fridge is dead. Well, but maybe the... Like, the pickled stuff is still good. No, it's not. It's dead. Like, you don't want any of that stuff. 
We'll just scrape the mold off the cheese. It still is probably good. It was moldy anyways. No, it's dead. That stuff is dead. Ah. When I first came up here for my interview, the, the staff decided that we were going to go to Maddie's over uh, in Lakeshore. And I was like, oh, this would be fun. We're having, uh, having dinner and having a good time, chatting it up. And sunfish sandwich. I said, well, that sounds tasty. Love sunfish. It comes out, I'm like, oh, my word, that's the biggest sunfish I've ever seen. Eat it, love it, go back. I'm like, where are you getting these sunfish? They're amazing. Like, well, it's not sunfish, it's tilapia. That day I said, Maddie's dead. You are dead to me. I will never darken that door again. Now it's cowboys. Still dead. Still dead to me. No need to go back there. We have the best seats in the house, seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Again, remember we started this. We started talking about this geographical location of where we sit. And upstairs I was... Uh, working out yesterday and back, um, it's like 2013, 2014. Abby did this whole Ephesians thing, and she had this poster. It says "In Christ," and all the students signed it. And I was like, "Oh, I remember those kids. I wonder if they still remember that they're in Christ." I almost brought it down. I was like, "This is so cool. Like, no matter where we are, we are in Christ. Why? So that in the coming ages." He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, as if he hasn't already done it. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. It's just like piling on good after good after good after good. Again, where is this all located? In Christ Jesus. And so we have this interesting thing that we're, that we're talking about and we continue to talk about is the reality of the now and the not yet. And maybe you've heard this before. It's like we have these things now and God is going to show us things in the future. The not yet. It's happened, it's happening, and it will continue to happen in the future like, how amazing is this? And you're like, oh, just wait. It gets better. And you're like, how could it get any better? Trust me, it gets better. And for, and for some of us, we're like, yeah, yeah, I'm just waiting for the better part. But, but the reality is the salvation that we're talking about in Christ Jesus is for the now and for the not yet. Jesus Christ comes 2,000 some years ago, and he says the kingdom of God is here. Like, well, yeah, because Jesus was here. No, he brings it and he establishes it here, and it's going to be fully established in the future. We have it, now we're just buying our time because it's really going to happen in the future. Like, I'm just, I'm good now, but I'm really looking forward to the future. And Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to realize that faith in Jesus Christ isn't just about the future, it's about the present. That God is lavishing all of these things on us, those of us who have gone from death to life, who have grabbed onto this but God. 
He's like, you just said we grabbed God's butt. He doesn't have a butt to grab except right here in this phrase. But God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I know for many people, it's like, yep, I've heard this verse before. But when the centrality of the gift of God becomes blah, 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 we miss the vibrancy of the Holy Spirit. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm saved by grace. Excuse me? God has rescued us by his grace. God has came down and created an opportunity for us to be rescued. And Paul's like, and you didn't do anything. And so then we get into this interesting conversation, which we've been talking about with Hebrews and in other places around, how does faith function? What is faith doing and what what part do we play in this salvation thing that God is doing? And Paul is very clear. It is by grace that we are saved. So it is the grace of God that brings to us the life in Christ. And there is this mysterious component of faith. But it seems to be the case that faith isn't what is bringing about salvation in our lives. And so then we talk about, well, is is, is it faith and grace? Are they both gifts from God? How do we parse this apart? What is the this that is going on here? Well, we know, grammatically speaking, Paul says, uses uh, a gender ending on the this that doesn't equate with faith. It equates more with the salvation and the grace part. And we really wrestle with what is it and what component does faith play? Because if it's God that's doing everything, presenting us with salvation, and we are doing nothing, I was thinking of it this way. You fall into a pit, and you're in this pit, And a hand reaches down and says, I'm here to save you. The hand can either grab us by the neck and pull us out and save us, or the hand can be there for us and we have to reach back and grab the hand when the hand grabs us. But it's not that we're pulling ourselves out of the pit. It's that God is pulling us out by his grace through our faith, through our saying, yes, I believe that this can happen. I trust that this can happen. So it's not that the faith 
in any way is creating salvation. It's entering through the door of grace. Because as soon as we say, well, I'm doing this, then we negate everything that God is doing. And when we say, I don't have a part, then we just become this passive blob awaiting salvation. And that's where the drowning metaphor kind of falls apart, because when you're a lifeguard, you'd rather have a passive drowning victim if you don't have the right stuff, because a passive drowning victim isn't going to fight back, and you can rescue them without them uh, killing you. Remember that from my uh, lifeguarding days? You're like, so wait, if you had a person that was drowning that you couldn't necessarily save, you'd let them technically go passive before you... I'm just doing what the American Red Cross told me to do. So take it up with them. But in this case, we see this interplay of grace and faith interacting with each other. And we can get so caught up in that that we miss out on what Paul is trying to communicate, not only in this section of the letter, but in the totality of the letter. Because remember, one of the main things that we talked about with the letter of the, to the Ephesians is that Paul wants to talk about mutuality, and he wants to talk about equality within the body of Christ. And we know in an ancient Near Eastern context, these people would have been so entrenched in status and work and effort and doing all these things that if they did something, well, I did it. And you're like, no, they weren't Americans. They were ancient Near Eastern people. I mean, we hear their frame, you know, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. And that mentality infects our faith. And, and I am very much a doer. And, and if I, and in, in any way I'm not successful or have a challenge, my first response is always, well, I should have done something different or I could have done something more. And so when we have that that exists within ourselves, this outlook on life, when we hear these words, in some ways it it pops the balloon of our ego because there's nothing that we can do. And Paul wants us to know that. This is not your own doing. So Ephesian church, you haven't brought about the salvation that you are experiencing. You aren't somehow at a different status level in Christ because of the effort that you have put forth. You aren't somehow holier because of the practices that you are embodying. And that's just Paul talking to the Ephesian church that then those words ring in our ears and, and we have this desire that, well, I can't just accept this gift of God. There's something that, that I certainly have to do. And I know I've used this example before. You, know, you invite somebody uh, to your house. And they're like, well, what can I bring? 
And I'm not coming to your house. Oh, no, but I have to bring something. And you're like, no, no, just don't bring anything. Just show up. And then they show up and they're like, well, I had to bring something. So was I lying when I said don't bring anything? Well, I wasn't sure what you meant. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. We have a human problem with accepting gifts around this no strings attached. And so God offers us this gift in a way that, that our hands are tied so that we cannot boast. And why is that? Because he's doing something bigger. And again, this concept, when he says that you have been saved through faith, is this perfect passive participle that that it's happened and that it's going to happen. And I know we have a really hard time with this. Well, I'm saved. I mean, what a great evangelical question. When were you saved? Well, I'm not yet. We've talked about this before. <laughs> Next time somebody asks you that, especially if you see somebody on the street corner and they say, are you saved? You're like, not yet. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, no, I know about Jesus. Let me tell you about Paul and his use of the passive perfect participle. It shuts the conversation right down. <laughs> like, you get the Jehovah's Witness knock on the door. Are you saved? Well, not yet. Okay, let me come in. Let's talk about this. Okay, I'm just not interested. We're saved now, and we're being saved for the future. It's the now and the not yet. We don't become saved at one point, and and then it's just done. It's this continuational process. And why is it? And he uses, again, this for. You notice he says for in verse 8, and then he says for in verse 10. We are his workmanship. So we are God's plan. We are God's creation. Created in Christ Jesus. Again, this location that is in Christ Jesus. We are God's craftsmanship in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. So, wait, what? So then I have to do something. If I'm saved, then I have to do something. And it's not exactly the case. And remember, as we talked in the beginning of chapter 1, when God sets out to create humanity before uh, the foundation of the world is what Paul says, He sets in motion human beings to be in Christ, in relationship with Christ, so that we, those who are in Christ, can work out the good works on behalf of Christ in the present. So i got to do these things in order to be saved. No. We are brought into Christ. This is God's desire and plan for humanity that we would be in Christ. And as his workmanship, we are created to do these things that are in the line of Christ. It's not that we do good works 
and then we receive salvation. It's that by gaining salvation, we experience what God has desired for us in the creation of humanity to be in relationship with him. And out of that flows these things, flows these activities, flows this cross-shaped life. And if we go back and we look at the full contrast, the person who is dead in sin is only concerned about themselves. Passions of the flesh, flesh, desires of the body and the mind. This is what I want. But when we are in Christ, it's not about what I want. It's not about what I desire. It's about what God desires from me and for me. So when I go and, and participate in this life of good works, it's not for myself. It's not for my own glory. It's not for my own gain. It's because I reside in Christ. And this is what I've been made to do. And then I've been rescued out of this place where my flesh, my desires, my interests were number one. And in this case, Christ's interests are number one, which God prepared beforehand. Like This wasn't a thrown-together idea. God had this thing planned out at the beginning so that we would be in Christ to do these things And it's not just a, well, I'm going to go do my Jesus thing. I'm going to go put on my, my mission hat and go someplace else. You know, let's go do something Christian today. We're going to go uh, shovel someone's sidewalk. Now, like, okay, done with that. Now what do I want to do? And it becomes this fascinating look and fascinating picture where we acknowledge that, that we have become so infected by the world that the transformation of the Holy Spirit is this process by which we are being regenerated into who we are supposed to be. And who we are supposed to be is in Christ living out this life of good works. And notice he uses this phrase that we should walk in them. He has this bracketing of walking, but in one case the walking is to death, in the other case the walking is to life. I mean, how amazing is that? We could not get a clearer picture of what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ means that we are actively engaging in a cross-shaped lifestyle doing good works. So what do I earn? <laughs> it's like a classic Wyatt line. Hey, I need you to go do this. Well, how much is it going to pay? Nothing. Well, then why would I do it? Because I told you to. Uh, mm, I don't know. What value is it in me to do this thing for Christ? For me to lay aside my own desires, my own wants, 
and to sacrifice for Christ. Because so often we, we miss this. And Michael Gorman does a brilliant job in his book, uh, Cruciformity. If we are to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we are to be in Christ, rescued by God, we are following a man who laid aside his entire world to be nailed to a cross. So when we say, so I might have to give some things up. Mm. This is true. But lest we forget, we are gaining so much more. Immeasurable riches. And so when we actively participate and live this cruciform life, walking in the ways of God, we don't even wonder what's in it for us. We don't care what's in it for us because we've already gotten everything that's in it for us, which is freedom from sin and death. And we are freed in Christ to live, to live this way where our desires are not first and foremost, but the desires of Christ are at the front of our minds. Which leads me to this uh, Ash Wednesday Lenten season. As we create different things uh, within our context, it's not to burden us with one more thing to do. We don't need to do one more thing. It's not to make us feel guilty uh, because, let's say, we take this Lenten book that's going to come out this Sunday and, you know, we do three days and then we forget it for seven days. And we're like, oh, I feel terrible that I'm not doing this thing. If that's the case, then we just don't even do it. You know, Ash Wednesday is next Wednesday. We have a service at 7 and noon. It's not about gaining any favor with God. It's not about securing our salvation. It's not about gaining any standing with God. It's about moving ourselves more and more into the shape of Christ and carving out space so that the Holy Spirit can work on us. And then this Lenten booklet. Every day there's a different spiritual discipline. My hope is not that you're like, oh, I got to do this thing. Uh. No, you don't have to. I want us to engage in this practice for the glorification of who God is in our lives and to squeeze ourselves more and more into this mold of the cross. And if it's going to become a burden, just don't do it. And on Monday nights uh, throughout Lent, uh, Gunner's going to be facilitating this um, time together of prayer and some liturgical flavor, old school flavor. Um, but again, it's not one more thing to do. It's one more opportunity in which we can engage with God in a communal experience 
so that we can press ourselves together into this cross-shaped life and move ourselves through these practices further and further away from the death that exists in our background. So do some, do all, do none. But they're not about earning anything. We have been saved by grace. Not because we've done anything. And it's the freedom that gives us ultimate opportunity to live into life today and moving into the future. You can go to your groups.